Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Amen. You can be seated. You are not getting out of here at 1030. Go ahead and prepare your hearts, okay? (laughs) Take your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. As you're open to Genesis chapter 9, let me encourage you and remind you of Mission LaGrange coming up the first part of July. July, I think, 6th through the 12th. The breezeway is filled with posters that you can sign up to be a part. You can walk through there and kind of get an idea of what we're going to be doing. If you have questions about what specific things mean, you can find me, you can find Randy Presley, you can call the person on the top of the poster. That person will explain to you exactly what's going on. We've got construction. Men, if you enjoy construction, we've got a house very close to our church that's in desperate need. We've kind of drawn this connection point and built this partnership, and we're working with this precious lady right now. So if you're interested in construction, John Doman's heading that up. You can talk to me about it. That'll be a possibility. We're going to be doing three different kids' clubs around our area. You can sign up for that. It's very much like a VBS we do, backyard Bible club kind of a thing, three different locations. There's the Emmaus Shelter for women. There are all sorts of things you can sign up to do. And I want to challenge you now. I'm I'm not going to do this, but I consider doing this. I may do it and you not know about it. I want to see every person's name on a list. And I've got a roll so I could check it if I had to. I'm not going to. At least not while you're looking. But I want to know if your name's on the list, okay? So sign up. If you can't volunteer to be there, sign up to prayer walk. You can prayer walk wherever you are in the world. You understand? You're out of town on work, prayer walk for us, okay? All right, so Mission LaGrange, July 6th through the 12th. Be a part of that. Encourage and challenge everybody to do that. Now, Genesis chapter 9. Let's go ahead and delve in this morning. We're continuing our study in the book of Genesis, the sermon that we've entitled, or the sermon series we've entitled in the beginning, it's a systematic walk through the book of Genesis. Now we've covered a ton of things up to this point. We've challenged you in a lot of different ways, but I just want to kind of quickly summarize. We're going to delve right in this morning into what the Lord is doing. But we've already seen the, the flood account. We've studied through that in the last several weeks. We've seen the waters rise and now fall. The ark landed on the mountains of Ararat. The Bible says that the Lord opened the door. Noah and his family and all the animals have come off. And last week we saw that the first thing that Noah did when he comes off the ark is he makes this altar. And he makes this sacrifice to the Lord to show him his gratefulness and to demonstrate his love for the Lord. And then the Lord kind of gives this command. We saw these kind of bookend pieces there at the beginning of Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 and verse 7. Kind of bookend this theme of going again into the world, spreading your name, the name of the Lord, being fruitful, multiplying. We talked about the idea of the, the glory of the Lord should be shown to all the world, right? That's the command the Lord gave to Adam. It's the command that the Lord gave to Noah. It's the command that the Lord gave to Noah's descendants. And by the way, you're one of Noah's descendants, okay? So by logic, we can make this, draw this conclusion that you've been called to spread the glory of the Lord all through the earth. Now that's where we left off last week, so we're going to jump right in this week to Genesis chapter 9. We're going to finish this chapter, but we're going to do it kind of chunks at a time. We'll start in Genesis chapter 9, verse 8, and go through verse 17 to start. Then God said to Noah, again, here's the Lord speaking to Noah and his sons with him. 
I now establish my covenant with you. Now, by the way, if you're, if you're paying attention, I hope you all are, I want you to notice how many times the Lord uses the word covenant in these few verses. Okay, it's kind of like a word search for the next couple of minutes. As you see it on the screen, you make note of it. See how many times the Lord uses it, okay? So I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals and all those that came out of the ark with you. Every living creature on earth. Now, verse 11. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. Verse 13, I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you, and all living creatures of every kind, never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. Now, anybody want to guess what the theme of those first several verses are in Genesis 9, 8 and following? Anybody want to guess one word? Covenant. Look at that. Y'all are amazing. Amazing. I'm very proud of you. Here's truth number one. We're going to think through this just for a few minutes this morning. Number one, God displays his covenant. God is going to now display his covenant. Now, we first talked about this idea of covenant back in Genesis chapter 8. Because the Lord's going to look ahead in Genesis chapter 8 and the Lord knows what's coming. He knows what's going to happen with the ark. And so he says to us in Genesis 6, 18, I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. Right. So the Lord's already made mention of this covenant. He's already looked ahead to the covenant. He's talked about the covenant. But now in Genesis chapter 9, verse 9, he says very clearly, I now establish my covenant with you. Now, here's the interesting thing about this idea of a covenant between God and Noah and really God and all of his people following. By the way, this is one of, I think, six or eight covenants in the Old Testament between the Lord and his people. Here's the interesting thing about the covenant he makes with Noah and his descendants and all the people on earth until the end of time. The covenant that the Lord makes with Noah has absolutely nothing to do with Noah. Let me explain that just for a second. God says, I'm never going to flood the earth again, right? That's my promise. We're going to get into that in just a few minutes. I'm never going to send a flood and destroy the earth with water again, Noah. That's my covenant to you. But Noah has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not the Lord floods the earth again in the future, does he? Now, we're Noah's descendants. Any of you have power to stop the world from being flooded? Just out of curiosity, anybody? No? Right, the covenant is to us... And it relates to us and it's about us, but we have no part in it, do we? See, it's a picture here. If we kind of, I guess, extrapolate from that and understand and draw truth from it, it's a picture of God's faithfulness. You see that? Even when we're unfaithful, even when we fail, the Lord's going to be faithful. Even when you drop the ball, he's not going to. Now, it's difficult for us because we don't live in a world of covenants anymore, do we? 
I bet very few of you, if any of you, ever use the word covenant in your life. <laughs> you don't meet up with a buddy at work and say, let's establish a covenant together in a business. You don't say stuff like that. Maybe we write a contract. Maybe you make promises. Probably the, the closest thing we can see in our world uh, to, to kind of mimic or understand this idea of a covenant is the marriage covenant that we enter into. Right, we, we take these vows with a person we're married to, and I, I want to kind of blow your mind just for a second, but I want you to kind of follow with me. Just think through me, with me logically for a second. The covenant of marriage is kind of a picture and a reminder of who the Lord is in our life. And Ephesians 5 talks a lot about that, and you can read Ephesians 5 and get a picture of what marriage ought to be and what it ought to look like. It's really about Christ and his church. But the covenant we make with our spouse is similar to the covenant that the Lord makes with us. And let me, let me explain what I mean. Just stay with me, okay? You're going to be surprised, but you've probably never thought about it quite like this. The covenant, if you're in a marriage now, the covenant you made to your spouse has nothing to do with the covenant they made to you. Now, let me explain what I mean. I went back and pulled out some of the vows that I use in, in, in weddings, and a lot of them are very similar, and I'll use my name and Amy's just kind of as an illustrative point here. When you got married, you said something like this, or the pastor said something like this to me, or those of you that are going to be married in the near future, Adam, do you take Amy to be your wife? Right? So there's a series of questions I have to answer. To protect her, to care for her, to love her, to cherish her. He goes, and different pastors use different phrases, but there's this, this sense here that we're obligated to do certain things. And then we get into this kind of strange little part of the ceremony where we promise to do these things regardless of the circumstances. Do you remember that in your, in your marriage? Where he said, I'm going to do these things. I promise to do these things. And you probably said something like this. In sickness and in health, right? Doesn't matter if I'm healthy or sick. or I'm I'm going to promise to be this person. In richness and in poorness, right? Whether we're wealthy or in poverty, I promise to do these things. In good times and in bad, right? We said these things. Here's what I basically said to my wife when I made this covenant to her. Honey, I promise to do these things to you regardless of what you may do. You ever thought about that? Far too many marriages become, honey, I'm going to love you as long as you love me. I'm going to be kind to you as long as you're kind to me. I'm going to treat you fairly and say nice things to you as long as you treat me fairly and say nice things to me. The covenant we make with the Lord is is really, if you want to kind of whittle it down and understand it in biblical terms, it's really one-sided. It's the way you have covenanted to the Lord to treat your spouse. Now, that may mean news to some of you, and maybe that'll help some of you in your marriage. But I think it's a picture of the covenant the Lord gives to us. When he says, I'm going to be faithful to you when you're not faithful to me. I'm going to love you when you're not loving me. I'm going to show you grace when you don't show anybody else grace. I'm going to show you mercy when mercy's on the last thing on your mind. Lord, so I'm, I'm going I'm to demonstrate to you this perfect love through this covenant because I'm going to be faithful even when you're not. And the Lord says to know, I'm going to give you this covenant. This is who I'm going to be in your life, in the life of your descendants, and for all people, for all times. And so God makes this very interesting visual reminder. Look again at verse 12 and 13. He says, this is the sign of the covenant, right? Because if he just said it to Noah and it had just been written in Genesis 9, many people probably would have forgotten about it. But the Lord says, I'm going to give you this really cool reminder. (laughs) 
When you look up in the sky, and maybe it's rained or it's misty or whatever, you look up in the sky and you see a rainbow, it's going to be a reminder to you of the covenant that I've made. Verse 13, I have set my rainbow in the clouds. It will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, I just want to make kind of a, a distinction here to make sure we're on the same page. I don't want there to be any confusion. God's not saying he's not one day going to destroy the earth because the Bible's clear he is. In fact, 2 Peter 3, you can read a little bit about it where there's this, there's this clear teaching that one day the world's going to be destroyed by fire. Revelation talks about there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. But the covenant that the Lord makes with Noah is that he's never again going to destroy the world with a global flood. And we see kind of wrapped within that idea of covenant theology the faithfulness of the Lord. God is trustworthy. Now look at verse 18. So the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we've heard these names before. But now Moses, remember Moses wrote the Pentateuch, book of Genesis, and the other four that follow. Moses adds this little parenthetical kind of interesting point here at the end of verse 18. In fact, it's in parentheses in a lot of Bibles. Ham was the father of Canaan. That's interesting. It may, may not mean a whole lot to you. We're going to get there in a few minutes. It's important. Verse 19. These were the three sons of Noah. And from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Now here's truth number two, right? So we've seen the covenant of the Lord. We've seen the faithfulness of the Lord. We've seen the calling of the Lord. And now truth number two, society grows and people are scattered. Society's going to grow and people are scattered, right? It's, it's, a, it's a, an indication, it's a fulfillment of the calling the Lord gave to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and spread his glory through the face of the earth. It's a fulfillment of the Lord gave, that the Lord gave to Noah as well to be fruitful and multiply and to show his glory throughout the earth. It's this fulfillment of the calling that the Lord has placed in the lives of these people. And so we see very clearly that population is growing, people are moving, people are spreading around the earth, and there's this process of growth that takes place. Now, I just want to remind you and kind of let you kind of see where we're going here in just a second, this idea of Canaan. Because it's going to play a real important role in the next part of the passage, but it's going to play an important role really through the whole rest of the Old Testament. You may be thinking to yourself, okay, so the, so the Lord has called these people to be fruitful, to multiply. We see in Scripture here that now these people have spread out, and the Bible says that they're going all over the earth. And you say to yourself, okay, they were centered somewhere on the mountains of Ararat, probably modern-day Turkey. How do people go from that location all over the world? Because some of you are thinking, well, there are no airplanes, right? There, there, there are no cars. How did people ever survive without airplanes and cars? I had, I had a conversation with a guy just this weekend. He's a member of our church. He'll be here at 11, I think. He was talking about his grandmother. He said his grandmother died a few years ago. She was 97 years old when she died. And we were just talking about all his grandmother had seen I mean, a hundred years worth of a life when she was born in the early 1900s and all that changed in her life. But he said she used to tell him and kind of joke with him that the first date she ever went on, the boy picked her up in a wagon <laughs> and a horse. Somebody thinking a wagon, like a red wagon. No, a, a horse and buggy. <laughs> like a carriage, right? Like little house on the prairie. He picks her up, you know, and they go, and they go to dinner somewhere. That's foreign to us. I don't want to ask. Some of you may be thinking, hmm, that reminds me of my first date. No, 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 I don't, I don't know how old you are. But the world's changed, hadn't it? 
It's different, right? But people, just to clue you in, young people, right? They didn't have the internet. They actually, watch this, they actually walked all over the earth. Isn't that amazing? That's how they scattered. You say, how could they scatter? They didn't have airplanes. Well, just just geographically, think think with me just for a second. From modern-day Turkey, you're really centered. It's a great point. If you wanted to get to, you can walk to Europe. You can walk to Africa. You can walk to Asia. It's right there in the middle. So that's a bulk of the continent mass on the planet already. You can walk to those places. You can migrate to those places. Then you get to the northeast corner of Asia, the Bering Strait, right? What, 15 miles across to Alaska? Not far. Some people believe there used to be a land bridge there. They could walk across to Alaska. Maybe they build boats and get across. Now you've got all of North America. You can walk down through Central America all the way down to Southern Chile and all of South America. So you, you literally, you may have never considered this. You can walk the planet if you wanted to. Now, it would take many years, and this is the sense we get in Scripture, that over time, these people begin to spread out. But there's this sense here, this fulfillment, that the Lord is spreading people out. He's moving them. He's shaping and sending them around the planet. So this idea of being fruitful and multiplying is taking place. You say, how'd they get to Australia and how'd they get to the islands of the Pacific? Well, Noah's family knew a little something about building boats, didn't they? Right? They had a little experience. <laughs> so they built boats. And they sailed around, right? So we see this spreading out. We see this growth. We see all these things taking place. But I want you to notice something's interesting going to happen now. Everything's good up to this point. And we see this theme scripturally. And we see this even with the children of Israel. Good things happen and then something bad happens. Good things happen and then something bad happens. So we had the flood, that's a bad thing, and the, the earth has been cleared of all this stuff. Then Noah comes out, and his family, the Lord blesses them, he builds the altar. Good things are happening, they're scattering, they're growing. Now look at verse 20, look at what happens. So Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard, right? So he's going to grow some grapes. Verse 21. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside of his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, right? There's that, there's that interesting little side note again. Saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth, these are the other two brothers, took a garment. They laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and they covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so they could not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves, will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. Verse 28, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. Now, we've seen a lot of incredible things, a lot of good things, a lot of blessings of the Lord, but truth number three is important for this time period and for time periods that will follow for the rest of the world that we live on. We see very clearly truth number three is that sin remains. Sin remains. Now, that's not something we like to talk about. We don't like to think about it. But the the fact of the matter is, after Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, sin enters the world. From that point forward, everything changes. And from that point forward, sin is always prevalent. It invades and it seeks to kill and steal and destroy. 
So even after all that God had done, as he wipes the world clean with the flood, even after the Lord has destroyed everything, all the people, all the animals, all those things are gone, even amidst that devastation and all that's taken place, sin still remains. And so we fast forward a few years now because Noah plants a vineyard and then there's this indication that he drinks the wine from the vineyard, right? Some time has passed. It takes several years for a vineyard to actually produce enough fruit to make the wine. And so we've kind of fast forwarded a few years and we see this interesting thing that happens in these few verses with Noah. And so I want to point out to you kind of three things, three problems that we see in this context and how these three things lead us to sin down the road. Now remember, we're still, we've still got this idea of Canaan kind of floating around out there somewhere, right? He's brought up kind of a strange place to bring him up. This is Ham is the one that went into the, to the tent, but he talks about Canaan. Then he's going to curse Canaan, who's Noah's grandson. So he's still kind of out there. We're going to get there in a second. We're going to make this connection. But I want to kind of notice for a second these three things that happen in these verses. The first idea and the first idea of sin we see is Noah's drunkenness. Now, we can, we can talk about alcohol a lot, and I've got opinions, and I think I can make some pretty solid biblical cases for drinking alcohol at all. I'm against it personally, but I'm not going to preach about that today. That's not my, not my place because that's not what the Scripture teaches. But we can de- debate and discuss that all we want, but there's no debate about drunkenness. It's a sin, period. If you drink to drunkenness on any level, you are sinning. Whether you're over 21 or under 21, students, now, there are a lot of people who think it's cool, they think it's fun, they think they have to do that in order to party. Say what you want to about it, but the Bible calls it sin. Okay? So Noah drinks to this point of drunkenness. And when he does, what oftentimes happens with so many other people, he does things he's not in control of himself doing, right? He doesn't know he's doing them. So we see this idea of drunkenness. He drinks himself into this stupor. He takes off his clothes, apparently, and he passes out in his tent. Now, the second thing that happens is that his young son comes into his tent and sees him with his clothes off. Now, for us, that would be an embarrassing thing, right? We understand that. That would be kind of a strange, embarrassing process to go through. But for a person living in this time, and you can kind of see this in other parts of Scripture, other passages in the Bible... The idea of someone seeing you without your clothes on was shameful and it disgraced you. It was more than just an embarrassment. Culturally, for these people, this was a big deal. And when someone saw you like this, it was really a disgrace for you and for your family. And so we we see this man now, Noah, and I I just kind of want to think through this just for a second before we move on. Because we, we see this man, if we were to think back about Noah and all he's accomplished and all he's done and, and the ark and the faithfulness of the Lord, and he was chosen because he was righteous and all the things. I mean, this is Noah we're talking about here, right? And yet this man who's done all these things has accomplished so many things through the power of the Lord working through him. Even a man that was righteous in the eyes of the Lord has now fallen into sin. Now, I want to I hit the pause button just for a second. I just want to see this as a warning. I hope you're not the kind of person that maybe the Lord has done some pretty cool things in your life in the past. Maybe you've served him. Maybe there was a time when you were in his word and in prayer. Maybe you've strayed from that a little bit. But I hope you're not the kind of person that kind of lives in the past with the Lord. 
Like you think about yourself maybe as you were three or four or five or eight or ten years ago, your faithfulness to the Lord. I used to be the guy that prayed all the time. I used to be the guy that was in the Word all the time. I used to be the guy or or the lady that was interested in serving the Lord. Don't live in the past of what the Lord has done because if you're not careful, you're going to walk down the path of Noah and you're going to find yourself in sin. I think this serves as a clear warning for us. It does not matter what the Lord has done through you in the past. Sin still remains. And I think we ought to all have our guards up. I bet if I went around this room... And I asked you to tell me of the names of people that you have known that have been godly people that have fallen because of sin. I bet we could all name a bunch of them. We know the stories. It breaks our heart. Sometimes it's a pastor. Sometimes it's a deacon. Sometimes it's just a man of the community that people thought was godly and lived his life for Christ. And all of a sudden he allows himself to get mired in sin and it brings him down. And it eventually destroys him and his ministry and his family. We, we see that. It's a warning as we think about Noah and all he accomplished, to never let our guard down, to never allow sin to creep in. Because here's what happened. Noah allows this sin to creep in. And because of the sin of Noah now, his son Ham is involved, right? Because here's the third thing. His son walks in the tent on Noah. Now, we can make an argument that maybe he should have not invaded his privacy. Then there's scholars that debate about that. Maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong. But the clear thing he does wrong is after he sees his father like that, an absolute disgrace and embarrassment, what does he do? The Bible says he goes out and he tells his brothers about it. You see that? How many of us have seen that godly person or that person that we know fall into sin and the first thing we want to do is go tell everybody else about it? Hope I'm not talking to you. And we're good about it, aren't we? Because it becomes a prayer request. Did you hear about John? We need to pray for him because then we just kind of lay out all of his dirty laundry. I think the sin of this man is that he saw his father in sin and instead of trying to do something about it, he went out and told his brothers. He didn't even cover him up apparently. It takes the two brothers to come in, right? And the Bible says they, they, they make this intentional effort of not looking at their dad and they, they put this thing over their shoulders and they back up with this blanket and they cover him up so they don't see him like this, so they don't embarrass him like this. But we see like, this progression now, right? This is Ham. This is the son. We see Noah, a godly man. The progression, he allows sin into his life. He makes mistakes. He allows this to happen. His son now enters. And because of Noah's sin, now Ham is responsible. I'm not saying he's not. But because of his father's sin, Ham sinned. You ever thought about that? Had Noah not made these mistakes, his son would have never been able to make those same mistakes. And so Noah wakes up and he hears what happens. He hears about his son and how some way or another it's been told what he's done. And the interesting thing, and I don't have a good explanation for this, he curses Canaan, which is Ham's son, right? It's his grandson. Now scholars have debated, I I read six or eight commentaries and nobody's got a good answer. Why does he curse Canaan? Why doesn't he curse Ham? Well, some people believe, and I kind of tend to lean towards this, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, fight for it but I I think it's because the Lord has already blessed the sons he's blessed Noah and the three sons the Lord's already done that and so Noah pronounces this curse upon Canaan now for for a lot of us as we read this this is kind of the end of the story right this is it but if you fast forward a few thousand years to the story of Exodus 
and to the land that the Lord called Moses to lead the people of Israel into, you'll find, if you study, that that land was inhabited by, you want to guess who? The Canaanites. The direct descendant of Ham. And if you were to do just a quick study on the Canaanites, I want to read for you just a few of the things the Bible says about them. They were wicked, evil people, far from the Lord. They indulged in idolatry, incest, adultery, child sacrifice, homosexuality. And by the way, I left off some of the worst ones. I just didn't want to say them. Some of the things they did. This is a wicked, wretched, sinful group of people. And we can trace their heritage back to Canaan, back to his dad, back to the sin of his father. Now watch this. Some of you are probably thinking, so he got drunk and did something stupid. Yeah, not that big of a deal. And in the grand scheme of things, maybe it's not. But you understand because we've got this view of history that we don't have in our own lives. We get this view of history how the mistake of one man led to the sinfulness of a nation. Now, those people are responsible for their own actions. But it started with Noah, didn't it? And on Father's Day, let me just remind you, dads, it started with a dad who didn't do what he should have done. It started with a dad who didn't stand in the gap like he should have stood in the gap. And it's very easy for us to start well, but rare is the man that finishes well. I want to end with a poem this morning that I found thinking along these lines. It's written by a man named Robertson McQuilkin. He was the president of Columbia International University in the late 60s, all the way to the early 90s. I don't know anything about him, but just in my reading, a godly man. This man eventually retired so he could take care of his wife who was dying of Alzheimer's. And he wrote a poem entitled, Let Me Get Home Before Dark. It's the idea of living a life faithful to the Lord. I want to finish with this this morning. Here's what it says. It's sundown, Lord. The shadows of my life stretch back. We have it on the screen for you. Into the dimness of the years long spent. I fear not death, for that grim foe betrays himself at last, thrusting me forever into life. Life with you. Unsoiled and free, but I do fear. I fear the dark specter that may come too soon, or do I mean too late? That I should end before I finish, or finish but not well. That I should stain your honor, shame your name, grieve your loving heart. Few, they tell me, finish well. Lord, let me get home before dark. The darkness of a spirit grown mean and small, fruit shriveled on the vine, bitter to the taste of my companions, burdened to be borne by those brave few who love me still. No, Lord, let the fruit grow lush and sweet, a joy to all who taste, spirit sign of God at work, stronger, fuller, brighter at the end. Lord, let me get home before dark. You know, we all need God's grace, don't we? We need it every single moment of every single day. And there are an awful lot of things we can learn about Noah and the flood account. We can learn about Noah's faithfulness and his trust of the Lord. 
We can learn about the judgment of God as well as his grace. But I think as we end this story of Noah, and by the way, this is the last time we're going to speak of Noah in this context. I think we should be reminded of our need to consistently seek the Lord. To never let down our guard and to always trust him. Because when we seek the Lord in all things and we give our life to him and we finish strong, he is glorified and he does great things through us. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible story. Lord, of a a faithful man who made mistakes, cost his family, Lord. A man who was used by you. A man who was righteous, Father, but then stepped aside and allowed sin to creep in, Father. May it be a reminder of us in, in the end to finish strong. To seek you in all things, not to let sin creep in, Father. Not, not allow us to not allow it to change our hearts and to change our families. And so, Father, I pray you would just guard us against those things. You would protect us. You would give us the strength and the courage to, to be the men or women of God you've called us to be. In the midst of all that, Father, I pray you would display your glory and the gratefulness that's in your heart towards us. And Father, I pray you would lead us to worship, lead us to serve you, and I pray you would do incredible things through us for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can stand. We're gonna give you a couple of minutes to come down and pray at the altar. Now I'm gonna challenge you, men. You're you're welcome to stay where you are. I'm not gonna put anybody on the spot, but maybe some men wanna come and pray. Maybe they're just challenged a little bit to to be a little more, to do a little more. Maybe you, for the first time, realize that you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior and you want to repent of your sins. Or maybe you want to join the church, but this is your time to respond. You come as we sing together. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.